1: for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up.
0: This is the Ion Travel podcast with CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Peter, and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide.
2: Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another Ion Travel podcast. It's Christmas holiday season, and a time to be joyous and celebrate. We're also going to talk about a story I've been covering for more than 33 years. The terrorist bombing of Pan Am 103 from London to New York in late December 1988. The downing of that 747, which killed 270 people, remains an open murder investigation. And I'll talk with one courageous woman, Victoria Cummins. She lost her husband on that flight, and she's continued to pursue the authorities to bring justice to those who bombed that plane. And then we'll shift gears and crystal ball the year ahead in travel with Simon Wright and The Economist in London. Batting third, one of our regulars, Troy Johnson, the chief content officer from San Diego Magazine, with a global report on the state of restaurants, good, bad, and ugly. First up, an important and sobering conversation with Victoria Cummock and the story of Pan Am 103.
1: Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: In about three days, we are going to acknowledge, and I'm going to acknowledge, a very sad anniversary. One that I lived through because I covered it as a journalist, and for the last 33 years have continued to cover it as a journalist. Uh, One of the worst cases of mass murder in my history and perhaps in yours. On December 21st, 1988, uh, there was an airplane, Pan Am 103, a 747 leaving from London to New York's JFK, and it never made it. At 31,000 feet over Scotland, a bomb detonated in the cargo hold, packed in some luggage, and the plane broke up, and and much, much of that plane slammed into the small Scottish town of Lockerbie, 259 people on the plane, 11 on the ground were killed, and it became at that time the largest open murder investigation in history. And joining me now is someone who knows this story better than anybody else I know. She lost her husband in that crash and in that explosion, and her name is Victoria Cummock. And since 1988, she has worked tirelessly to pursue what really happened, to pursue justice, and to get resolution in a story that continues to be an open murder investigation. Joining me now, Victoria Cummick, welcome.
3: Thank you, Peter. I appreciate your interest.
2: And as you know, Victoria, I've been to Lockerbie many times, covering it for uh, at one point for ABC and in and, and, and the last 12 years for CBS. Uh, it is a harrowing story, uh, one of an intense investigation uh, that went to nearly 44 separate countries. Uh, The people who did this are still at large, uh, although the Scottish investigators know exactly who did it. Uh, There's no statute of limitations on murder. But what's really interesting for me is how you responded here, because there were many grieving families, many grieving husbands, mothers, fathers, wives. You were one of them. But you've continued this pursuit, and, and now you've started a foundation, the Pan Am 103 Lockerbie Legacy Foundation. And tell me a little bit about it.
3: Well, Peter, um, o- over the, the last three decades, um, uh, the Pan Am 103 families um, have, in horror, um, watched the public awareness of this first terrorist attack against America just fade into the backgrounds of anybody's memory and the pursuit of, of justice and accountability on behalf of all these murdered passengers, predominantly Americans, um, ha, has has really fallen to the wayside. Um, whenever there's a, a, a crime committed on a U.S. flag, carrying, uh, flag bearing aircraft, um, the U.S. federal um, government has jurisdiction to investigate and to prosecute the crimes on board an aircraft, regardless of, of where it's flying uh, or what the location is. Um, in our horror, um, the US abandoned the Americans and abdicated the lead investigative responsibility to Scotland's smallest police force in Lockerbie, not, not to the UK, but to Scotland. And US authorities to date has, have never pursued, prosecuted, or prosecuted any suspects um, outside of issuing criminal indictments and criminal charges um, which uh, actually criminal charges were were just announced uh, a year ago by general attorney general bob Barr um, he even stated when he issued those uh, new criminal charges against uh, one of the Libyan suspects that, quote I, I felt that our follow-up to the attack was not sufficient and the fullest measure of justice has been denied today you know there's a three decade per, uh, pursuit of accountability and justice but it's really um being uh run by by the loved ones um and and we're trying to um push our government um to to move forward we we really wonder why um why you know the the us has abandoned um the, the the passengers as well as the families and uh allowed you know that that a, a criminal trial be held at the Hague under Scottish law um and and not actively pursue um the accountability and justice as they did with 9-11 and and also um uh when when there was an attack uh, of the US uh Diplomatic post uh, and CIA annex in, in Benghazi, Libya. You know, within two years, um, the U.S. had gone in, found the perpetrators, brought them to the U.S., tried and convicted them, and sentenced them each. You know, uh, uh, to nineteen and twenty-two years. Um,
2: and you know, you know was- Victoria, let me just interrupt you for one second. I want to give it somewhat of a sense of of history here. Back in 1988. Uh, you know, four days before Christmas is when this happened. And as the Scottish investigators went country by country trying to figure out the chain of, of custody of this bomb, who built it, who contributed to it, who put it on the plane, um, the gang in Germany, the, the, the number of countries involved, um, whether it was uh, Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic, uh, Libya, Lebanon, Tunisia, uh, Jordan, Uh, Germany. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And by 1990, a year and a half later, as the investigation was getting pretty close on who they thought did it and and, uh, who they wanted to indict, something else happened. Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And the United States, under George H.W. Bush, was trying to put together a global coalition of armed forces to go out and fight Hussein in in, uh, in Kuwait and then take the war back to Iraq. Uh, the one armed force they needed more than anybody, which at that point was the most well-equipped army in the Middle East other than Israel, were the Syrians. People forget. The Syrians became our partners in this war against Saddam Hussein. One small problem. Who was up to their necks in Pan Am 103, along with all the other people? The Syrians. And when the United States government, and our then Attorney General, by the way, who was then Bill Barr, as well, determined that we would not get the Syrian support against uh, against Saddam Hussein if we indicted the Syrians for the bombing of Pan Am 103. They preempted the Scottish investigation and indicted those two Libyans. Uh, and, and you're you're absolutely
3: right. But even even further, there, there were other um, co-conspirators involved in. in oh sure. Yeah. Downing of the Pan Am 103, and oh, of course, and the of the investigation course. was railroaded and given to to the Scots because, um, you know, in July of 1988, the USS vincennes Navy warship shot down an Iranian um, air Airbus. It was a civilian, civilians oh, right?
2: Civilians, right?
3: In Iranian airspace, and it killed 290 civilians. Um, And the Iranians uh, vowed retaliation. And frankly, the Iranians, the day after Pan Am 103 was blown out of the sky, um, claimed responsibility for the bombing of Pan Am 103. Now, the co-conspirator investigation that had to be done was way above the the heads and scope of the smallest police force and investigative team in Scotland. Sure. But I think our government did that very conveniently because they wanted to to wash their hands of it. And I do feel that um, you know the Libyans were not uh, a bunch of choir boys. Gaddafi uh, certainly wasn't, and that um, they did have play a part in in getting the bomb on board the plane. But certainly um, the sponsor of of this attack, um, with other evidence that's come out, you know from the CIA and our other 17 intelligence um, uh, agencies in the U.S. alone um, show that um, that, you know, there there, there was certainly uh, uh, a hand uh, by the Iranians. Oh, sure. um, And also, you know, with the whole autumn leaves operation in in, in Germany that they discovered um, the the group that uh, had made a bomb with the same plastic explosive in a Toshiba cassette player and, and all of that. And that was all related to the Iranians and, and the PLF-GCP and and all of that.
2: 33 years ago this week, Victoria, I'm sure you had no idea that we'd be talking like this today, that it, it disrupted and upended your life and so many other lives with this tragedy. I guess the real question is, and it leads to the foundation itself. What lessons have come out of this? What have you learned particularly? What do you want people to know, not just to preserve the memory of what happened, but to get to some resolution here?
3: Well, again, um, I think we we need to um, be able to raise awareness um, that this was an attack against America, that um, it still remains the oldest cold case of mass murder in U.S. history. Um, the attack uh, created the largest recorded crime scene um, and remains uh, the largest uh, attack in, in UK history as well. But here we are 33 years later and our government has not um, actively uh, pursued bringing to justice and holding um, uh, everyone accountable that that um, were Potential co-conspirators um, and what how this really um, affects the American people and the flying public today is 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 really um, important f- for us to um, to stress because um, if in fact um, those who seek to to harm and terrorize the American people aren't brought to justice, and if laws and and regulations to enhance aviation security or counterterrorism um, are passed, but yet not implemented. Then other attacks like 9/11 um, continue to happen, as well as as uh, other other uh, air um, issues, uh, in, including you know the the, the safety and, and security of 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 the
2: current flying public. I will also tell people that. What's been so, uh, it's had such an impact on me that when I've gone back to Lockerbie and I go out to that small town, which which, as Victoria alludes, had the smallest police force in Scotland. When I go back to that small town where people used to never lock their doors, where people knew everybody and they were a very tight-knit community, out there in that field where that but the cockpit of that plane impacted the ground. There is a small memorial, um, and you can visit it. And I've been there probably three or four times. I know Victoria has gone many more times than I have. Um, and I encourage you to go, and and walk in and and look around. It's very small, but there's a. Uh, uh, there, it's it's a wonderful tribute to the people who were lost on that plane. Uh, There's a visitor book there. uh, And try to reflect on what happened on December 21st, 1988, what it meant, what it created, and at the same time, what's not been resolved. Here we are 33 years later. I can guarantee you as someone who investigated this story that the Lord Advocate in Scotland, their version of our Attorney General, knows exactly who the co-conspirators are. Uh, who they were and who they are. Uh, And the question is, can they still be brought to justice? Can they still be extradited from where they are all over the world? Uh, It's a fascinating story of investigation. It's a frustrating story of investigation. And it is a reminder to all of us as to what we need to do, uh, how we need to stay strong. And I must say, and Victoria didn't know I was going to say this, but of all the victims' families, of all the people who were affected by this terrible tragedy, the one person who has stayed on course, the one person who has never given up, the one person who continues to pursue justice is the woman I'm talking to right now, Victoria Cummick. And the name of her foundation is the Pan Am 103 Lockerbie Legacy Foundation. I encourage you to learn more about it to learn more about the story, because I'm, I, will, I will tell you a quote that I've used many times before, but it is particularly appropriate in this case, those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. And we not only need to learn from what happened on December 21st, 1988, we need to apply those lessons and keep the pressure go- pressure on, as Victoria has done, to finally get to a point where we can say, justice has been served. Victoria, again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I and I wish you all the best at this, uh, you know, at what should be a very joyous holiday season, um, and and uh, but one of remembrance as well. Again, the name of the foundation, the Pan Am 103 Lockerbie Legacy Foundation. I encourage you to check it out. I encourage you to learn more, and we'll be talking about this in weeks to come. My thanks to Victoria. So, what can we expect in travel for 2022, based in no small part on what we experienced in 2021? Simon Wright from The Economist magazine has a few predictions. We've seen what's happened over the last 20 months. And the question is, everybody's talking about travel coming back with a vengeance. Well, is it? And most importantly, how is it coming back? Where is it going? What does it mean to you in terms of your pocketbook? Not to mention your choices. And of course, the way you're going to travel. How are you going to travel? Not just where. Joining me now from The Economist, the man with the answers. Simon Wright. How are you, Simon?
4: I'm very well, thank you, Peter. So
2: let's start with, you know, what what the world ahead in 2022 is going to look like, because 2021 was a
4: roller coaster. I think you'll agree. I think that's right. And I'm, I'm wondering now if 2022 isn't going to be a little bit of a roller coaster as well. I was a little bit more confident that things would be improved. And I think they will improve in 2022. But um, uncertainty, I think, still uh, prevails. And in what ways? Well, look, I mean... Um, the big picture here is uh, travel stopped almost, uh, you know, entirely when the uh, COVID-19 first struck and it's been slowly recovering. But that recovery has been, you know, it's been a little bit up and down. The the The, uh, we, we, the, the general trend is up, but, you know, the thing, things are happening along the way. And the new Omicron variant is an, a very good um, example of the kind of Unexpected uh, things that can happen that can sort of set travel back a bit, but I think as you you know, as we all know, everyone wants to travel. The world will get back to traveling um, as it used to at some point in the future, but the journey to that I think is is uh, as I say is riven with uncertainty.
2: I guess the uh, the point that I would make, and please tell me if you agree with me or not is that we've come to grips with the fact that this is a virus that may not be eradicated, but it will be managed somehow.
4: Well, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, look, you know, if you look at these uh, programs of, um, you know, getting jabs in rich countries, that's, that, that's that certainly made things uh, much, much um, easier to handle um, in terms of, you know, going out and meeting people and doing things like that. And, you know, the travel industry is coming to terms with this. Things like, you know, COVID passports, um, you know, that you, where, whereby you can show your vaccination status are being used very widely, both in countries and, you know, at borders in order to uh, make sure that, you know, that safety is put to, the, put to the forefront. So I think, as you say, the travel industry is adapting to this, and I think it will sort of continue to adapt.
2: Of course, the economic impact can't be understated. You know, you go back to the traditional, you know, the metrics that were given to us by the World Travel and Tourism Council, where the average annual GDP is about 11%. There are some countries that are as high as 40%, basically driven by travel and tourism. Those numbers aren't back yet, are they?
4: No, that's absolutely right. And look, the thing about tourism businesses is they tend to be sort of small and medium sized enterprises those are the sort of sort of enterprises that don't have the firepower to you know get get into big debt um to see out the crisis so i think the question is what's going to be left of the tourism industry in some countries on the other hand you know tourism has grown very sharply over the past 20 years so i think you know um if you look at these sort of company companies that provide those sort of services little restaurants you know boutique hotels they are quite adaptable. So I'm, I'm you know, hoping there'll be um, plenty left for us to enjoy.
2: Of course, looking at the bigger picture, we can't ignore the staffing shortages. About 10% of the workforce in travel and tourism has not come back this year, and there's no guarantee they're coming back next year.
0: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back and the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.
4: Well, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's not just travel and tourism, but all kinds of industries that are sort of suffering these sort of bottlenecks, um... All around the world, so I, I, you, you're absolutely right. That's another thing that we can have to worry about. I mean, a, sh- a shortage of airline pilots, strangely enough, is one of the things that is uh, causing problems. And so,
2: all that together creates, or basically, I should say, continues this perfect storm going into 2023. You know, it's one thing to say that that leisure travel led the way back in in 2021. It did. The airlines that did so well were the ones that were perfectly positioned as all-leisure carriers, whether it was Ryanair over, over across the pond where you are or Frontier and spirit and Allegiant in the U.S. Has it changed the definition, Simon, of what we consider the legacy carriers because they can't survive being low cost.
4: Well, I mean, if you look at what the legacy carriers were doing before this came along, they were trying to take on the low-cost carriers on the, in the short-haul market, sort of beat them at their own game. Very, very difficult for them to do that. The real problem for legacy carriers is the how much they rely on business travel. The big question is how much will business travel be affected uh, in the long term?
2: Simon, when we last left off, we were talking about how business travel was going to come back. There's one thing to talk about meetings and conventions, you know, big, large gatherings. But there's also something to be talked about in terms of person-to-person, face-to-face meetings. And all you need, I think, is just one Fortune 500 company sales staff saying, enough of this, we want to go meet with our clients. And their competitors don't want to be left out. They're going to be hopping on planes
4: too. Oh, that's absolutely right. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I think the question is what are the sort of bits of business travel that may not come back? And I think things like internal meetings where there's really not a great deal of internal company meetings where there's not a great benefit to be had by meeting face-to-face. I think that's, you know, going to be a bit dodgy. And also the uh, executives I spoke to, I've spoken to recently, what they say is those sort of trips where they go halfway across the world for a sort of a, uh, an hour-long meeting to present some slides, that won't happen either. The sort of, you know, the executive uh, showing uh, off, you know, that they they can do all this travel. I mean, and I think they're quite relieved about that as well. I think you may be right. So
2: now let's, let's run the numbers. This is where it gets a little interesting for my audience, because if business travel is only going to come back half. That revenue gap is going to have to be made up somehow, and I would guess that would mean an increase in airfares for everybody else.
4: Well, I mean, some legacy airlines are trying to get uh, leisure travelers into the front of the plane, but a leisure traveler is never going to, you know, pay $8,000 to cross the Atlantic at the last minute. So that's not really going to make up the gap. So I think you're right. I mean, I think prices will almost certainly have to have to go up the prices that are subsidized by those business travellers for 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 the legacy carriers i think that's inevitable
2: which means that for anybody listening to this program right now if you have plans for the year 2022 make them book that ticket now because by by march and april my guess is airfares are going to go nowhere but up it's not about just the law, the basic law of supply and demand it's about the basic law of survival as a business for the airlines
4: well, that's absolutely right. Look, all these airlines are now loaded up with debt as well, which they're going to have to pay off. So, you know, it's going to be a much, much harder business to survive in in the future.
2: And isn't it ironic, Simon, that so much of the debt they loaded up on came from the mortgaging of their frequent flyer programs? That one I can't believe. Yes, that's absolutely
4: right. Huge, huge sums. I mean, uh, uh, we're, were raised on the back of frequent flyer programs.
2: Yeah, we're talking between $6 and $10 billion and 10000000000 dollars uh, American Airlines actually valued their frequent flyer program at 34 billion dollars, but these airlines raised between six and 10 billion dollars each, and that's capital that came roaring back into them. But it's also a debt they have to pay.
4: That's absolutely right. You know, I mean, you wonder if the whole structure of airlines might not change in the future. It's almost a little bit odd that airlines own so many planes. And if you look at the hotel industry, the hotels tend to uh, lease the properties and operate them. And I wonder if in the the future, the airlines might rely on leasing companies even more than they do now and just lease the planes and do what they do best, which is the marketing and the operations.
2: I think you're right. I don't don't think there's a lot of future in owning the metal. I think they want to lease it. And I think that's, uh, you know, to the extent that they can do that, and to the extent that interest rates are relatively low, it makes, it makes a better deal for them. But if you look at the numbers of what it costs the airlines to maintain debt service and what they have to do to sell tickets and the, the load factor they have to get to be able to maintain that debt service, it's still going to be a challenge. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So give me the crystal ball here, Simon Wright from The Economist. Uh, at least for the next six months, what can we look forward
4: to, good, bad, or ugly? Hmm. Well, I, as I say, the, the, any, any forecast is overlaid with the uncertainty that's going on. As you say, the Omicron variant, you know, sort of almost changed everything. And that's only been around for a couple of weeks. But I'm fairly confident that next year will be better than this year um, in terms of volumes and just the sort of ease of getting around, just as everyone gets, as you say, used to uh, living with COVID. So we're still going to wear our masks. We're still going to have
2: to show proof of vaccination. We're still going to have to get tested. And my guess is going to be at both ends of the travel experience, both when we leave and when we arrive, and then when we return back home. Uh, I think that's going to happen. Uh, I don't have any faith, and maybe you could disagree with me on this. I have no faith that the governments are of the of the world are going to get together and come up with a universally acceptable one system of uh, verification or vaccine passport. Everybody's still operating in their own silos. That's still going to maintain some confusion and some disruption, but it's not going to impede our ability to move. And it's not going to impede our ability to travel if we do our homework and we play by the rules.
4: And I think underlying all this, as I said earlier, is everyone really wants to travel. Everyone's desperate to get back to traveling because it's one of the great joys of life.
2: So the early Christmas present we can give ourselves is at least the notion, Simon, that we'll be able to travel a little bit more or maybe a little bit easier in the the next year. How much we're going to pay for that that's the, that's the
4: intangible, right? I, I think that is the intangible. But look, if you look over the long run as well, the, the cost of travel has fallen enormously over the, over the past decades. So we shouldn't be too disheartened by that.
2: My thanks to Simon. You've seen Troy Johnson on the Food Network. You've also seen him on The Travel Detective, my PBS series. He doesn't just know food, he knows the food and restaurant business. And as we enter a new year, he's got a few thoughts about where you'll be eating, how you'll be eating, and perhaps why. I don't come to San Diego without getting my next guest on the show. He knows everything there's to know about the restaurant business, the food business, the culture, not not just here in San Diego, but around the world. He also happens to be the publisher and the chief content officer at San Diego Magazine, but you've seen him on the Food Network and my favorite show, the Big Ten Network, when at least my team is playing well, otherwise known as the Wisconsin Badgers, who did not beat Michigan this year. But then again, we love Michigan, because they beat Ohio State. So uh, anytime you can beat Ohio State. I, I'm just talking as a badger here, and you can write me all you want, but I'm still a badger. Get a anyway, little aggressive
5: help from your friends.
2: That's right. Yeah. And that voice belongs to Troy Johnson, who I've just introduced. Welcome back.
5: Hey, good to see you, buddy.
2: So we're living in a world of the great resignation, mm-hmm. where 10% of the workforce during the pandemic came to the conclusion that they didn't want to come back, uh, no matter how much money there was being thrown at them. Mm-hmm. They re- reassessed their lot in life. They reassessed not just their job, but their lifestyle, where they were living, how they were living. A lot of people moved, left town, went to different locations, took on different jobs. You cover restaurants. Mm-hmm. You cover food. Does, is it going to get any better? I'm in New York. My four favorite restaurants in my neighborhood are no longer. They're gone, mm-hmm. right? And the release signs are out, and nobody's moving in. Uh, Every third storefront on Madison Avenue is vacant. Uh, I'm sure you see the same thing here in San Diego. Is there an upside now?
5: Well, there is an upside to this because it made restaurateurs drastically reevaluate how they do business. They got lean, they got mean, they got organized, they got clean. They got it, it, the the talking about restaurants. They are not business owners. Most of these people are chefs, you know, and they come in there and they have to learn the business on the fly, and they don't even study it until it's almost too late. So what this did was it made all of them take hard look at the bottom line. Take a look at like the fat that they had in their menus, what wasn't selling, what inefficiencies they had. You're going to have some of the most efficient restaurants in the world coming out of this. So that's that's the plus side. I mean, when we saw this first happen, I spoke with chef after chef after chef after restaurant owner saying, I am having people walk into my restaurant and try to poach my staff in the middle of service. I have had, you know, people are getting offers of $1,000 on the spot, especially when the PPP money was heavy and hot. You know, they is walking down the street and walking into another Italian restaurant and saying, I will take, if you quit right now, I will give you $1,000 to come work at my restaurant. I mean, it is it is absolutely, it's created a lot of distrust within the oh, sure. restaurant scene, which restaurant scene has always been a, a fraternity, a sorority, you know, just kind of a- commitment. Now
2: it's become cutthroat.
5: It's become a lot more cutthroat for sure. Yeah, and you know, in, in the what it's going to do, obviously- Chains that have the largest, to whether this financial storm are going to be, you know, doing the best. But moreover, you know, it's really going to create an equality in the restaurant house. There's always been a financial inequality from the front of the house to the back of the house, meaning dishwashers, cooks, bussers, untipped employees. Bussers make a little bit of tips and cooks do in some cases, but in most cases, they don't. The front of the house, the servers, they make a really, you know, I mean, not, I'm not going to say they're all wealthy, but they definitely, in terms of that microcosm of an economy, they make a lot more than a dishwasher a lot more than a cook and a lot of people said you know what I'm not gonna work in this industry anymore you know I'm gonna take off unless there's the more more wage equality that's what the great resignation did for this house so you're gonna start seeing a lot of service charges a lot of um, you know flat fees for service distributed among the entire house you're gonna see a much healthier organism of a restaurant going forward because there's gonna be equity
2: but the question I mean I'm expecting that I hear what you're Mm -hmm. saying But at the same time, I'll give you an example that happened to me just the other night. I went to a restaurant in Long Island in New York, Mm -hmm. and they actually had it printed on the menu that due to the pandemic, they had severe staff shortages, and they wanted you to understand their situation. And because of that, anybody using a credit card, they were going to add a $3 charge to your meal. And I'm saying, couldn't you find another way to do it? Couldn't you I mean I I understand what you're going through right but why don't you just charge me a dollar more for the salmon and two dollars more for the French fries? I mean, but but I don't want the I I really don't want the restaurants to go the way of the low cost airlines. I I I don't want to have to like you know get an estimate for a a, a bottle of water.
5: Yeah, the surcharges that just mount yeah. up and are itemized as if yeah. they're a tax deduction. I I agree with that. The only thing is, you've talked to any restaurateur, and they will tell you how resistant the marketplace is to even a. 50 cent raise on that salmon. I was like, really, just tuck it in, tuck it into the salmon, tuck it into the fries. I felt the same way as you do. But when you talk to these operators, they say no way. It's the first thing that they notice. You know, they will have a thousand angry customers saying, last week I got those fries for $4.99 and now they're $543. You know, so that so they're really just kind of laying it out and trying to be transparent about it, saying, "Look, we're hurting. What they, what's really happening is that they're having to turn people away. These tours have so many customers with pent-up demand. We all want to go out. We the, all want to eat. The
2: restaurants are packed, and you have to wait three hours for a cheeseburger. Yeah."
5: Well, then you'll see empty tables. What a lot of restaurants are doing are taking out their tables because they don't want you to show up, see six empty tables and go, why can't you just put me there? That just creates ire. But the fact is they don't have the staff to, to
2: do that table. All right. So where does that change? And when does that change? You
5: know, I, I really think that once we go ec- explore, you know, our options in life, and once we start to go to architecture school, and once we start to go to, you know, chasing, you know, the lifelong dreams that we have, you know, I, I think a lot of people who have a lot of savings coming, I mean... Obviously, the pandemic was very economically hurtful to a lot of different people. But there was also a lot of people that were able to store up savings, you know, and they were able to, what they were able to do is take that now and live off of it and not have a day-to-day job. I think we're going to see a return to that, you know, pretty soon. You know, I mean, people cannot resign and stay unemployed for an indeterminate amount of time. Right, but when they
2: come back, the economic reality is you're going to have to pay them more money. They deserve it, number one. Number two, you're going to see profit-sharing pr- pr- plans, health plans, yep. right? Which means those fries that were four ninety-nine that are now five forty-three could be six seventy-four.
5: As they should be. This is the. This country is full of cheap food. We have undervalued the cost of food in this country, which goes way back to Nixon and his get bigger, get gone um, approach to um, agriculture in the United States. We have produced cheap food and we've trained people. Well, that, explain that. Which, well, Nixon basically said, we need to feed an entire country. So either you do a big farm where you can grow in bulk and and charge a much lesser price for a tomato and make food affordable, or we're not going to help you. We're not going to give you the subsidies. So what we did is we trained a whole generation of people that food is very cheap it's not the real cost that goes into it is that person in the back cooking it is that dishwasher back there it's the guy who's coming in and cleaning the restaurant they need to be paid equitably too and i think we're gonna see now that we're gonna you're basically gonna charge a lot more for a restaurant meal and we're all gonna learn to pay it we're just gonna go out a lot less really yeah I, I, everyone I talk to that is in restaurants saying we are going towards that price hike and we are expecting fewer people it's we eat out way too much in America we learned to cook again during the pandemic so grocery stores are doing great yeah. meal services are doing great <laughs> that sort of
2: thing so you we you know there are some cities in America and I'm going to tell you the one that comes to mind Atlanta with the most underutilized kitchens in America nobody eats at home in Atlanta they all go out to dinner <laughs> until the pandemic yeah
5: it really changed the, it changed the culture from the core. You know, we all re, um, looked at our stove and went, hello, how are you? I haven't seen you in a long time, and I definitely haven't turned you on. You know, and I think it, it created that appreciation for, you know, the homesteading um, urge in all of us. And it is going to hurt restaurants. But what it is, too, is it's kind of a thinning because there were so many restaurants in the, across America. And it was so like one was opening up every single week. We don't need that many, to be quite honest with you. There was a glut in the industry. And I think what this did, and a lot of operators were barely hanging on, just kicking the can of insolvency down the road. And I think that this really hurt those operators. Those operators were kind of like, when am I going to throw it in? Well, now I'm throwing it in. Well, the
2: margins are so thin at so many restaurants. And this is not, this is not because of the pandemic. This is defining the the industry, Mm -hmm. right, for so many decades, right? I mean, I don't know about you, Troy. By the way, we're talking to Troy Johnson from San Diego Magazine. I don't know about you, but I entertained the idea at one point of having a restaurant. It's one of the all-time great male fantasies. right? But I'm smart enough to know what an idiot I am, (laughs) right? Because I'd go bankrupt in a week because it's not... It's not like, you know, Rick's Cafe in Casablanca.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: I know. It is, I mean, the, the industry operates on razor-thin margins, which just got smaller, especially with wages going up, as they should. We need to pay people. What you're going to see, you're going to see the return of the Automat. Do you remember the Automat?
2: I'm old enough to not only remember it, I miss it. I know, where you go in and you pull a food, prepared food, out of a drawer. You know, b- I, I'll go back and tell you the name of it. it was Horn and Hardart. It was the Horn and Hardart Automat. That, I, that,
5: well, you're going to get them back,
2: Peter. And the display windows, right, mm-hmm. that held the coconut cream pie behind it yeah. were brass. Oh, yeah. And you, you would put your money in and just open it and pull it out. We've been speaking with Troy Johnson, the chief content officer, the publisher at San Diego Magazine, but you also see him on the Food Network and the Big Ten Network, and now I get a chance to see him right here in San Diego. When we last left off, we were we were reminiscing, being the old guys that we are, about the Horn and Hard Art Automats. If you remember <laughs> the Horn and Art Automat, email me to peter, com and tell me, what was your favorite dish? Was it the pumpkin pie the coconut cream pie, or in my case, this is a wild one, the tapioca pudding. Okay, forgetting that, Troy, what's going to happen now? We know that the delivery systems might change, mm-hmm. or we might go back to the future,
5: mm-hmm.
2: but will the food change?
5: Yeah, you're definitely going to see the food change. Well, the food, the menus themselves are going to change. You know, what you're going to see is you're going to see the in and outing of America. You're going to see the the of America. You're going to see, you know, small focused menus. Easy to um, produce, easy to assemble, quick to assemble. You're going to see, you know, things that have to travel well. You know, I've, I've heard the great thing about this for restaurateurs is that they really started to investigate how much they can make off of the, you know, delivery market and what food travels well and what food doesn't. You know, you can get ramen, that's really hard food to do when you do, when you travel because those noodles are going to get all big and soggy and, wor- and worthless. But they all figured out how to do that. So they're investing in that space and, and really kind of up and that side of the business. So we're going to see a lot of, you know, main, mainline m- menus. And, and in terms of the, the food quality, I think if anything, it's probably going to get better to be quite honest with you, because if you're going to do a sit down restaurant, you're going to have to make a mark. You're either going to have to be to go service for very, and, and very affordable and very, you know, lukewarm on the quality standards, or you're going to have to go
2: big. In my neighborhood in New York, they opened up a new sushi restaurant mm-hmm. in a very small location, mm-hmm. right? And I wanted to go try it. It was $250 a person.
5: Oh, yeah. omakase. Yeah,
2: like, sayonara. I'm not doing it.
5: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, again, the prices are definitely going to go up. And you know what their answer is going to be? You know, this is our um, take it or cook it. Offer, you know,
2: <laughs> <laughs> so just you know, deal with it. You know, all right, I- so now let's deal with the economics of something else that really blew up during the pandemic, and that's the food delivery services. Mm-hmm. Because if you actually deconstruct the actual final tab that you pay on a DoorDash delivery oh. or an Uber Eats, it's ridiculous. It is absolutely. I mean, amazing. you order a twenty dollar meal and you get a tab for thirty five dollars because the delivery guys are making more money than the chef.
5: Yeah, it is. It, it, you, it's amazing when you check out those four ninety nine fries how they end up costing you a layaway on a decent sized couch. You know, it is. It, those industries have really grown. The interesting thing that we saw. Have we
2: reached the tipping point where people are going to think? Let me look at that tab again. I did what? And then all of a sudden, no, I'm not going to order in tonight. I'm actually going to go get it myself.
5: Yeah, we had we saw a lot of re- resistance against the third-party delivery apps because of those low low fee that they were giving the restaurants themselves. For a lot of restaurants, it was just a marketing you know, ploy. They really didn't get make any money on any of the orders. Oh, look,
2: the restaurants were basically asking me not to call them.
5: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean,
2: it's so because I, because interestingly enough, some restaurants, if you call them, the, the the actual call was rerouted to like you know Grubhub and DoorDash and right it wasn't helping the restaurants.
5: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, so they've gotten better because they had to. They, they, I mean, they saw the third-party delivery services had to make a better deal with restaurants um, because a, they were getting a lot of you know, um, heartfelt pressure, meaning you know, restaurants are in trouble. These are our favorite things in America. Peter Greenberg wants to open one. You know, this is because they're emotional for us.
2: No, you, if Peter Greenberg wants to open one, run, don't do it. <laughs>
5: but so they, they got a lot of pressure to treat these restaurants right and help them survive. So they made better deals with them, but it's still, it's really hard on them, you know? So you're gonna see a lot of direct ordering. You see a lot of restaurants are actually um, starting to buy their own commissary kitchens to deliver their own food and fleets and that sort of stuff. So they're kind of getting into the entrepreneurs. They're they're doing
2: third-party kitchens.
5: They're doing their own third party. You know, they're basically creating their own delivery fleet again, just like pizza places did way back in the day.
2: Explain how that works. You know, well, I mean,
5: it, it, they're cutting out that middleman. That middleman got so, so expensive that I know restaurateurs here in San Diego that are, are taking over with other tours empty warehouses, and they're creating commissary kitchens. So when you order on online, they just send it to their commissary kitchen, and they deliver. So it's
2: it. not coming from the restaurant at all. It's not
5: coming from the restaurant at all. It is coming from the same cooks and the recipes and the staff and everything else, you know, but they are just outsourcing their delivery problem.
2: I get that. That makes sense. Yeah.
5: I mean, you see the former CEO of Uber, he was buying up, um, you know, massive uh, warehouses in undesirable—I don't want to say undesirable, but in low-cost um, neighborhoods, you know, where next to a freeway, next to a recycling dump. And he's putting in a bunch of these ghost kitchens, you know. They're basically— ikeas of ghost kitchens or a we work for kitchens you know and each individual concept they may not even have a brick and mortar you know and they're just basically you know and they're
2: not even branded
5: they are branded brands the only thing you do with the ghost kitchens you make sure that the brand goes online oh really right it's all branding so it's just a digital concept doesn't have you know a brick and mortar and they're just serving food out there to a line of delivery drivers that are snaking through that neighborhood
2: and those and those fees are going to go up Oh, yeah. Look, the year of 2022 is going to be the year of more expensive food, whether you like it or not.
5: I know. No matter
2: what the delivery system.
5: Yeah, well, thank God I, I'm not as bad of a cook anymore. I mean, I kid, I kid. This is basically my life. I cook all the time,
2: but I became even better. I became actually
5: efficient in my cooking. Cause my cooking is like a triage moment. Usually, it looks like you know the Guernica. It's just a war scene. You know, <laughs> I got wine and sauce everywhere. And, you know, my, my wife's like, How did you use every single dish in the in the world in order to make cereal? Well, you
2: all know? I can say is I better not find out that you've opened up a ghost kitchen in your house. <laughs> then I'll, we know we've got a problem. it up in your house. You got it. And we'll make it deal. My thanks to Troy, to Simon Wright, and to Victoria Cummings. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, which is never ending, by the way, just log on to petergreenberg.com special thanks to our sponsors at clear
0: enroll in clear at clearme.com slash peter and zip through busy airports
4: nationwide one two three four those are numbers but you already knew that if you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car use kelly blue book my wallet on auto trader they're really good at numbers
0: auto trader some puzzles are hard to solve others are hard to prove listen to blood is thicker the hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts access episodes early and ad free with 48 hours plus on apple
3: podcasts hi this is jill schlesinger cbs news business analyst certified financial planner and host of the money watch podcast this is the show where your money is not scary it is a show that's all about you